We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and in order to hit Easter the proper way, we're going to go from today's reading and jump to chapter 14, but I'm going to keep my promise of going through it first and first. So after Easter, we'll come back to some of the discourses here. But today we continue where we did last week. Last week we looked at Palm Sunday when it wasn't Palm Sunday. And about the, in the Gospel of Mark, the hiddenness of Christ coming. And Mark breaks off Jesus' visit to the temple and makes it two different times. There's verse 11, immediately preceding today's reading, where Jesus enters the temple, looks around, but then leaves. And then there's today's reading where he comes back. So hear the word of the Lord according to the Gospel of Mark, the 12th chapter, to the close. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. Jesus said to it, and no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And then they all came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and he was saying, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, because they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching, and when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went to the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the same fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And again, they came to Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven? Or was it of human origin? Answer me that. They argued with one another if we say from heaven, he will say, well then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear what you say to us today. In your holy name, Amen. So what did that poor fig tree do to, end, to get what ended up to it? It's almost a strange way that Mark starts this second day, but as we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, it makes a nice marking sandwich. There's the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then the fig tree is found withered. Mark is surely implying something by putting the story of the cleansing of the temple in between those two buttresses of the fig. Well, we learn something about this fig tree that Mark gives us in verse 13. He went to it to see if he would find anything, but he found nothing because it was not the season for figs. The coming of Christ last week had been hidden. Even though Palm Sunday was there, we, we looked at Mark pointed out it wasn't particularly special. The crowd that was with him was already gone in verse 11 when he enters Jerusalem with the twelve. He's already gone around and looked and inspected as the king, and as it were, the day of reckoning comes when it's not in season. That's the main thing Mark is introducing with the fig tree. If a fig tree is in season, it has lots of planting. It can clean itself up, it can grow lots of fruit, and it would be ready for that day. Same thing as if you were a boss and you had to inspect the factory. If you announce to them that you are coming on March 1st, well, that gives everyone a whole bunch of time to clean everything up and to do everything the right way. And there was always, in regards to the temple, and the Pharisees especially, a sense that they were cleaning up the temple and doing everything in the right way. <coughs> this here shows that Christ did not come in the season that he was expected the first time, giving more teeth to everything he says regarding the second when he comes as a thief in the night. Christ is launching a surprise inspection upon the temple in this chapter, these verses of Mark. And the fig and the fruit thereof is a common metaphor in Jesus' teaching. He tells his disciples in the Gospels of Luke especially that each tree will be judged by its fruit. And if there is no fruit when the Son of Man comes, then there will be judgment. So in this metaphor of the fig tree, which stands in for the temple, Christ is coming on a surprise inspection. And we are already told that there is no fruit to be found there. And thus comes a curse. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Cursing in the Bible is wickedly rare. We have in Genesis, cursed is the ground because of you. But the curse of God actually does not come through in Scripture in any common way. It's not an utterance that's natural to God's character. It's something that only happens in respond to, response to sin and evil. But we see here in Christ this, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. In the context of the temple and Christ's inspection of it, 
A prophetic utterance of Christ shutting off the Old Testament and the temple system for the church. The Messiah has come to see what would grow of the temple, of the law, of all those rites given to Israel long ago through Moses, and has found no fruit. And no longer shall it be through those things that the spiritual fruit for which Christ longs will come. And that's why Mark, using that as the first bookend, gives us the action that goes with it. So Jesus goes to the temple and very famously cleans it out. I like the image in John of Christ making the wind. For those of you who grew up in church, it goes against the Sunday school, let's love everybody, and Jesus gives lots of hugs and stuff. I like the image of Jesus, you know. It's not the polite Christ here. He is overturning tables and throwing out money changers. And we must remember that this is in authority of the prophet and the king. For individual Christians, it's not proper. No matter how upset the church makes you for you to make a whip and start chasing out everybody. <laughs> but it is proper for the owner, as Christ is coming in the role, to fire folks. And see, the reason... Out of all the things that are going on in the temple, there's all sorts of problems wrong with it in Jesus' day. The reason why money is chosen, why the money changes are chosen, is because of what they represent. The people of Israel were supposed to bring sacrifices to the temple. They were supposed to come from the first fruits that the Lord had given them. Part of that process actually was the headache of taking one of the lambs from your field, choosing the best one. And offering that as a sacrifice to God. The priests and the Levites in Jesus' day had kind of made a workaround. Instead of taking that little lamb from your farm, you could just leave your good little lamb. So we're already kind of getting against the spirit of sacrifice. You could travel to Jerusalem, and there at the temple, after exchanging for special temple money, you could buy the lamb for your sacrifice. The religion had become commoditized. Kind of like if you were to go back to medieval Florence and you'd find vendors with different various saint medals and you could buy one for whatever ails you. This had come up into the very temple of God. And it had gone down to the level of doves. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that when Christ is circumcised, doves are given. But that's not a Christological reference. Those were given when Christ was circumcised as a sacrifice because they are the very cheapest sacrifice that can be given. This money system of selling and buying in the temples, it wasn't just for folks that were going to give away a new shiny cow. It had so corrupted the religious system that it went down to the people that the only thing they could offer were doves bought for a penny, but at the temple if you've ever had moral indignation going to Disneyland or something like that at the fact that the McDonald's now all of a sudden cost 10 bucks, you're thinking the right kind of thing. And what did that mean for the spirituality of a temple that was doing such? Jesus even points out as much in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you made it a den of robbers. 
And notice the reaction of the leaders. It's not to say, well, yeah, we've messed up. It's not even jaded to say, well, you know, we got to make ends meet. The tithes ain't what they used to be. No, it's anger. Anger at Jesus for even challenging them because in verse 18, they look for a way to kill him. Then Mark gives the second book in. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter says, hey, remember? That was the fig tree you cursed. And Jesus answers them with one of the best promises in the New Testament. Truly I tell you, if you say that this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, and you do not doubt it in your heart, but believe that what you will say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now we have to ask, if Mark is giving this fig tree, and the Messiah is coming for judgment, he has come to the temple and overturned the money temple, the money changers, and the fig tree is all dried up, where in the world does Mark pump in this promise that this mountain shall be thrown into the sea? Well, it has to do with what Christ says as he overturns the money table. Shall not my house be called a temple of prayer? Christ has already cursed the fig tree that no more fruit shall come out of it. Here is the final condemnation of the temple because he's not just talking about any mountain. Most of us have not had the ability to afford going to Jerusalem. It's almost kind of like the temple of the money changers to even go on a pilgrimage there. It's not something for us normal folk. But if you ever have the chance to stand in Jerusalem, there is one mountain. It's the Temple Mount. And when Christ says, truly you say to this mountain, Greek is explicit, we throw it into the sea, it will. Christ is promising his disciples a very specific promise to their prayer that if they pray against those things that are polluting the temple, those false religious systems, those things that keep the house of God from being a house of prayer to be tossed into the sea, and they do not doubt it, it shall be so. Now that's why it's so important that verse 25 comes in. It's, it's not an add-on. You'd be reading through this and you'd almost think it's added on, but it's not. Christ sums it up with, when you stand praying, forgive that anything, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. You see, this coming in judgment and secret of the night, the prophetic calling out of making a commodity of religion, Praying that the mountain may be tossed into the sea and that there shall no longer be fruit from these evil things must be done from a point and position of humility. From a position of realizing that it's not taking the speck out of your brother's eye, it's taking the log out of your own. And this is the only way I can figure out how to connect this passage to some of the things we are seeing today. What if today was the day of judgment. I would not want to be a Russian Orthodox priest today. They had been preaching that they should love their neighbors, that Christ is their God, and the Orthodox, you should know, tend to have a lot of solidarity. But I'm not sure in some ways I feel much more comfortable being a Ukrainian Orthodox or priest otherwise. 
For now, as their country is under attack, and it behooves even the righteous to protect their homes and their families, no matter how righteous the cause, we must always guard our hearts against hatred and revenge. The fruit of those two churches is being very shifted these days. It hasn't come in a proper season. It's still winter there. And we all like to tell jokes about fighting in winter in Russian areas. It's freezing and it's cold. And almost as if a curse, neither of those churches is probably getting a lot of spiritual fruit right now. But in some ways, they have it better than us. They know where they stand at this point. Just as Christ has come in secret to this temple, and in the Gospel of Mark, he has concealed himself, we are promised in the second coming it shall be the same way. There's the image in the book of Ezekiel of the man going around taking names, as the Johnny Cash song is, goes. And for each and every one of us, there is always the risk that it is the fig tree when it's not the season for figs. That's why one of the recurring things that has happened as I've gone through this gospel is you cannot wait. There are too many Christians, too many churches that they live their spiritual life as if it is fire insurance and they're going to skip out on the premiums by not paying any of them until they really, really need it. Well, I'll get spiritual when it counts. I will pray and have faith when the bad things happen. This also connects into how many of us are responding now. I'm sure for many Christians, during the initial start of COVID, there was lots of prayer. But as it stretched on, it trails off. Now, as a great calamity like World War III pops up, we realize we should do more praying. I do not belittle you or condemn anybody for realizing that need. That's a God-given blessing. It's the time for prayer. It's the time for fasting. It's the time for seeking counsel. The warning is for the day when it comes and it is not in season. For ultimately, we are reminded here that, that this promise that this mountain, this temple will be taken and thrown into the sea reminds us that there is always some Christian out there praying for purification of the temples. Praying that the Lord's people will be a house of prayer and not robbers. If you are a robber in God's temple, the fact of the matter is, is there is always and constantly going to be someone praying against you. Because finally we get to the last little bit. In Jerusalem, walking in the temple, the chief priests come up, the elders with them, and they say to Christ, by what authority are you doing these things? The Gospels of Luke and John, there's, sorry, Luke and Matthew, there's, just, there's miracles accompanying this cleansing of the temple. Christ has shown to these Pharisees and teachers who he is by mighty acts of power. They're asking Christ what his authority is because they are upset at Christ challenging them. 
It's as if the owner of the house comes in and catches you jacking his TV and goes, hey, where are you going with my big screen? Most thieves don't react positively to that. So when we talk about these needs for conviction, for being a house of prayer, that negative reaction inside you, we have to side a little bit with these Pharisees and priests. We know what that's like. But anyways, the long and short of this passage to close it off is they ask Christ, by what authority do you do these things, failing to see who he is? And Jesus, seeing right through them, says, well, John. You remember in Mark, John's the one who says, I prepare the way of the Lord, that is the Messiah. So Christ is going here. He's not dodging the question. He's not being tricky. John is the one who points out who Christ is. So, so he asked them, well, if you don't believe in John, you won't believe in me. So which way does it go? And we see just how cynical it is because they start to argue with each other. In 31, if we agree and say John was from heaven, then Jesus is going to ask us, well, then why didn't you believe him? Isn't that, a, isn't that the summation of nine out of ten church fights? Well, we have the word of God. What's the authority do you say it is? Well, if we say it's from heaven, then the pastor's going to ask us, well, then why didn't you believe it? But then they get the second part, and 32, but if we say it's of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, for they regard John as a true prophet. There's so many people that they really don't think the scripture is from heaven or things like that, but they're afraid to say it in church that they think that way. That tends to go over like a like a rock, especially if you are a priest or a Pharisee trying to have spiritual authority. So the most common answer that comes through in all these debates is, well, we don't know. Oh, how many churches are sunk? How many temples are overthrown? How many mountains are tossed into the sea? By we don't know. People do not come to church looking for Christ, but they do come to church looking for answers. And there is nothing worse to tell the seeking heart or those who are troubled by common events that we don't know. There's nothing worse than someone who is facing poverty or sickness or anything else to say with our prayers, well, will that work? Well, I don't know. It pulls it back to the very thing Jesus said in 23, Truly I tell you, if you say, go to the sea, and do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. The Pharisees and the priests with that, we don't know, get the rejection. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. We will turn now to Mark chapter 14 as we get into the Passion narrative. It's been a while since we've been able to be together for the Lenten season. And I've never actually done the classic one. So we're going to do the Passion narrative this year, going from chapter 14 to the end. And I look forward to going through that with you. And I extend again the invites to Ash Wednesday on the 2nd and to our prayer vigil for Ukraine at 5 o'clock tonight. Let us pray.